Hello, and welcome to another episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Madeline Snipes, and I am a medical student at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia. I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Bradley Morgenstern, pediatric urologist at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Hi, everyone. Great to be here. I'm also joined by Dr. Susan Goldberg, a pediatrician, also here at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Thanks for the introduction, Maddie. On today's episode, we will be discussing the diagnosis and management of nocturnal enuresis in children, which is a problem commonly encountered both in urology as well as the general pediatric office. By the end of the episode today, listeners will be able to define nocturnal enuresis and its basic epidemiology, describe the potential causes of nocturnal enuresis, describe the appropriate workup for a pediatric patient with nocturnal enuresis, Determine when referral to a pediatric urologist is indicated. List the various treatment options for a pediatric patient with nocturnal enuresis. And finally, understand the potential sequela that may result from untreated nocturnal enuresis. So let's get our discussion started. Dr. Morgenstern, let's establish for our listeners what exactly is nocturnal enuresis. So broadly speaking, nocturnal enuresis is when they lose control of their urine at night, something we commonly call incontinence. Incontinence is when you have a loss of bladder control and urine is leaked out. It's actually divided into two major categories, continuous versus intermittent leakage of urine. Continuous is a result usually of anatomic and neurological abnormalities, which leads for urine to just continuously come out. While intermittent variant of enuresis refers to usually children of over the age of five who involuntarily urinate in discrete quantities. As it is the more relevant type encountered in a general pediatric practice like mine, we will spend the majority of this episode discussing nocturnal intermittent enuresis, or just nocturnal enuresis for short. So just how common is nocturnal enuresis? Nocturnal enuresis is fairly common, actually. It's been said that roughly... 15% of all five-year-olds have nocturnal enuresis. Did you know that? This number decreases around 10% at seven years old. Around 3% of teenagers actually still have it. And around adulthood, actually about half a percent to a percent will be incontinent of urine at night. I've read that nocturnal enuresis is twice as common in boys. Is there any genetic association? Great question. There is actually a strong association with nocturnal enuresis in children of fathers who experienced nocturnal enuresis. Studies have shown that if a parent had nocturnal enuresis during childhood, their child will be 10 times more likely to also experience nocturnal enuresis. I'm curious, Susan, how often is nocturnal enuresis a chief complaint in your general pediatric clinic? Urinary complaints are a very frequent reason for visits to our primary care office, and nighttime dryness is proactively discussed as part of our routine annual well-child checkups, even into the preteen years to normalize this medical condition. As we mentioned before, there's a percent of teenagers that still have nocturnal incontinence, which can be associated with a lot of shame and embarrassment for older children. If you don't ask, they're not always as likely to openly discuss. Bradley, how often are you referred patients with a chief complaint of nocturnal enuresis? Uh, I would estimate about five to 10 patients come to me per week with that complaint. In fact, I actually run a clinic that is especially for these patients. So nocturnal enuresis clearly affects a significant percentage of our pediatric population. Just to recap, 
Primary nocturnal enuresis refers to monosymptomatic incontinence of urine at night without the presence of daytime urinary issues. Boys are much more likely to be affected, especially those with fathers who also struggled with nocturnal enuresis. Great job. All right, Maddie, let's keep our discussion going with a clinical case. Sure. So we have Bobby, a seven-year-old boy who presents with his mother to the pediatric clinic with a chief complaint of failure to maintain dryness at night. He has maintained daytime continence since age three. However, he has never gone more than three nights in a row without wetting the bed. Because of this, he continues to wear pull-ups at night. Great and very common case. So, Maddie, what is your differential diagnosis for a seven-year-old who still requires a pull-up at night? Well, to me, this sounds most like a classic case of primary nocturnal enuresis. But then, there are many different processes that can contribute to or cause bedwetting. Considerations include things that increase urine output from benign causes such as frequent drinking of liquids to systemic processes such as new-onset diabetes mellitus or diabetes insipidus, as well as things that may decrease bladder capacity or emptying such as voiding dysfunction, constipation, or obstructive sleep apnea. Other systemic and structural problems leading to enuresis might be more likely to be symptomatic and not isolated to just at night, such as urinary tract infections, posterior urethral valves, chronic kidney disease, ectopic ureter in girls, or even spinal cord issues. Great differential. Children with new onset or chronic urinary incontinence may be caused either by organic or psychosocial causes. Sometimes we have to think about stressors in the home, such as a new child, a change of caregivers, a schedule change, or a stressful life event. These can cause a period of behavioral change, which may include bowel or bladder changes. You should also consider the child's developmental or other associated medical conditions that could be contributing to their urinary issues. And we always do have to consider the potential for child physical or sexual abuse, and many times this is a concern for the caregiver bringing them in. Maddie, that was a great broad differential. I agree that this does sound like a case of nocturnal enuresis, officially described as monosymptomatic, meaning there's only one symptom, loss of urine. There's no pain with peeing or what we call dysuria or other problems. And it's primary, meaning that it's continuous his whole life. He's never had at least six months without being wet. Non-monosymptomatic enuresis may have lower urinary symptoms or daytime loss of urine that suggests there could be underlying identical causes, and those need to be further worked up. Primary nocturnal enuresis is the type I see most often in clinic. So let's talk about your differential, Maddie, which were all very plausible causes of secondary nocturnal enuresis. Most of them would be associated with daytime excessive urination, incontinence in addition to the nighttime incontinence and would create very different clinical picture other than monosymptomatic nocturnal enuresis, as was described for our case of seven-year-old Bobby. As we recall, Bobby had no symptoms other than failure to maintain dryness at night. Oh yes, I see. That makes so much sense. So let's explore how these potential causes of secondary enuresis might present. For example, a pediatric patient with a urinary tract infection would be more likely to have other symptoms such as pain with urination or blood in the urine. A urinary tract infection could be easily ruled out with a urinalysis and culture, right Dr. Goldberg? Yes, a urinalysis is quick, easy, and readily available in any office. 
and the presence of leukocyte esterase or positive nitrites suggests bacteria are present in what should be otherwise a sterile fluid. It's important to remember that urine microscopy can also be used to evaluate for white cells in the urine, which would also trigger a urine culture to identify causative bacteria of an infection. Anatomic abnormalities such as posterior urethral valves, which is extremely rare, are also potential causes of a patient with recurrent UTIs due to stasis and reflux of urine. However, posterior urethral valves is a pathology that we often identify in utero or more usually at the time of birth. Absolutely. Fetal hydronephrosis is a common prenatal ultrasound finding affecting up to 4% of babies. If identified, serial measurements are done through pregnancy to monitor if a urinary obstruction might be present. Because posterior urethral valves obstructs the normal emptying of urine from the bladder, the mother may also have oligohydramnios, or too little amniotic fluid. Amniotic fluid actually comes from fetal urine as an essential for adequate fetal lung development. What about ectopic ureters? How might that present as a cause of secondary enuresis? Ectopic ureters often occur in infant girls. It persists as steadily dribbling of urine from the urethra or the vagina due to abnormal implantation of the ureters distal to the sphincter. Now that doesn't always happen in boys because if they have ectopic ureters, they implant before the sphincter. Okay, that makes sense. Diabetes is another common diagnosis that might present as nocturnal enuresis, right? Well, type 1 diabetes classically presents in children with weight loss, polyuria, and polydipsia as the result of hyperglycemia. In kids who are not yet potty trained, parents may notice that diapers are heavier or need to be changed more frequently. Polyuria, that occurs during the day and night, results from an increased urinary excretion of glucose, causing an osmotic diuresis effect. Less commonly, kids may present with type 1 diabetes in diabetic ketoacidosis, or they may be completely asymptomatic. How would you distinguish type 1 diabetes from diabetes insipidus in a child presenting with polyuria? Diabetes insipidus, or DI, is a failure of the body to either produce or respond to antidiuretic hormone, or ADH. These are divided into central DI, where there is a lack of production of ADH, and nephrogenic DI, where the kidney tubules do not appropriately respond to ADH. This results in a massive diuresis and clinically presents as polyuria and dehydration. With a simple urinalysis, you can help rule out DI, but we will get to that in a few minutes when we discuss the workup for Bobby's case. Okay, so in summary, the majority of our differential diagnoses, which could cause secondary enuresis, would likely have daytime enuresis or other symptoms during the day, such as dysuria or polydipsia, which, if present, would lead away from a diagnosis of primary nocturnal enuresis for Bobby. That is correct. One exception would be obstructive sleep apnea, which you'd only address by asking Bobby's mom's questions regarding his sleep. It is important to ask about snoring if he has long pauses without breathing while sleeping, or if he ever sounds like he's gasping for breath during sleep. Excessive daytime sleepiness, as well as obesity, would also point to this as a likely diagnosis. Okay, so now that we have a good differential, how would you begin your evaluation of our patient Bobby? And how would you rule out all of these other diagnoses? First and foremost, a thorough history and physical exam is absolutely essential. A good history will allow you to identify the potential causes of secondary nocturnal enuresis. It's important to ask specifically about daytime dryness, whether the child was once continent but regressed, 
and whether the child has a history of constipation as bowel dysfunction is correlated with bladder dysfunction. What are other important factors that we might consider when obtaining a history? As we mentioned earlier, the child's social history is important since psychological comorbidities are common among kids with difficulty potty training. Identifying and treating any psychological comorbidity, such as ADHD, may result in resolution of the nocturnal enuresis. Also, don't forget to ask if the enuresis only happens in certain environments, like when the child is away from home, as this would make structural problems less likely. Again, ask if there was a time when the child was continent but regressed, and ask about circumstances around the time this occurred to identify stressors in the environment, including abuse. However, any stressor, even moving to a new house, can cause regression. That reminds me of my own child. Recently, I was on a cruise with my family, and my son, who had achieved nighttime continence a while ago, wet his bed every night while we were on the boat. As soon as we returned home, the bedwetting stopped. That is so interesting, and a really great illustration of the importance of taking a thorough history. As we discussed earlier, family history and urinary issues is important to review. It is particularly useful to know when Bobby's parents and siblings achieved nocturnal dryness as genetics may also play a role, especially if the father was delayed in achieving nocturnal dryness. Okay, so after gathering a thorough history, we learn that Bobby has never been consistently dry at night. There was no regression, and he never complains of other urinary symptoms. He also has no signs of any psychological comorbidities and has reached all other developmental milestones appropriately. We do learn that his father also did not achieve nocturnal dryness until age 12. Dr. Morgenstern, what do you make of this additional history? So far, with Bobby's singular symptom of nighttime incontinence combined with his father's history of delayed achievement of nocturnal continence, this is looking more and more like a common case of primary nocturnal enuresis. So what's next? After obtaining a thorough history, performing a good physical exam will allow you to visualize any external anatomic anomalies, which may point to a secondary cause of his enuresis. Maddie, what are some examples of physical exam findings that may suggest an alternative diagnosis other than primary nocturnal enuresis? Well, I know constipation can cause some urinary symptoms, so feeling a mass in the lower abdomen or a child complaining of left lower quadrant pain could suggest a stool ball, which would be indicative of constipation. Signs of dehydration, like dry mucous membranes and poor skin turgor, could point to diabetes, and tonsillar hypertrophy or obesity could indicate possible obstructive sleep apnea. Any new gait changes or abnormal reflexes could be concerning for a spinal dysraphism or CNS process that warrants further evaluation. Excellent job, Maddie. Genitals should also closely be inspected for any abnormalities such as meatal stenosis. Although most of the defects leading to secondary nocturnal enuresis would be internal and not apparent on physical exam. So after obtaining a thorough history from Bobby and his mother and performing a physical exam, which is unremarkable, how can we help identify the cause of his nocturnal enuresis? Well, we need to gather some more information at this point. I will typically ask the parent or even ask the patient if they are old enough to complete a voiding and fluid intake diary. This will allow you to determine the frequency and time of day that the patient urinates. If possible, try to have the patient quantify the volume of voids. Having families to include descriptors such as, was it dribbles? Did it take a while for everything to empty? Was the stream continuous? 
and or forceful can all be very helpful pieces of information. If the patient does have a wedding accident, note if there was a sense of urgency prior to it and have them record the time and amount of fluids that they were taking in through the day so that you can compare these with the urine output. This diary should ideally be completed by the patient or a parent or a guardian during a 24 to 72 hour period without disruption of school for more accurate information. Avoiding diary can be quite cumbersome task for families of patients with nocturnal aneurysis, but could provide some very valuable information. So what about labs? We mentioned urinalysis previously. Yes, all children with monosymptomatic aneurysis should have a urinalysis done. A urinalysis is a good, cheap, and easy screening tool for a urinary tract infection, diabetic ketoacidosis, diabetes insipidus, kidney disease, and other potential causes of secondary aneurysis. So let's say that Bobby's urinalysis is within normal limits. This further suggests a diagnosis of primary nocturnal aneurysis, right? Correct. A child with no red flags by history with a normal physical exam including normal growth parameters and a normal blood pressure reading, who also has a negative urinalysis, is very reassuring to me that the likely diagnosis is primary nocturnal aneurysis. Dr. Morgenstern, at what point would you recommend that a general pediatrician make a referral to a pediatric urologist? I would say after a thorough physical, a really good history, a urinalysis has completed, and some behavioral modifications have started, then it would be appropriate to refer to pediatric urology if you're concerned the patient might have renal or urologic abnormalities or bladder overactivity. Additionally, I would recommend a referral if the patient has persistent wetness that is unresponsive to those behavioral treatments and therapies, as it is associated with increased risk of persistence into adulthood. But for classic primary nocturnal aneurysis, referral to a specialist is not necessary, correct? Right again. With such common diagnosis, most pediatricians will treat nocturnal aneurysis themselves. However, a referral is always an option if the symptoms persist or if there's any signs of underlying urologic abnormality or disease, including renal disease. And that might be better handled by a nephrologist. So let me quickly summarize what we just discussed. It is so important to obtain a thorough history and perform a physical exam to help narrow down our differential diagnosis. A urinalysis is a quick and inexpensive test that should be ordered to rule out a variety of secondary causes, and avoiding diary is incredibly helpful in gathering more information before discussing options for intervention. You got it, Maddie. Okay, now back to our case. Bobby's mother thinks that he is just being lazy because seven-year-old kids should not be wetting the bed. Mom and dad have both tried disciplining and incentivizing him with treats, sticker charts, and trips to the park, but nothing seems to work. This is tricky. It's very important for families to understand that this is not under their voluntary control and that children should not be punished for bedwetting as it's an extremely common condition. A randomized trial published in 2021 concluded that psychological intervention aimed at education for caregivers of children with nocturnal enuresis, reduced punishment, and increased dry nights for affected children. Basically, if we focus our efforts on educating parents against punishment, affected children are much more likely to experience resolution of their bedwetting. But if parents shouldn't rely on punishment to discourage their children from bedwetting, what interventions should we recommend to parents? Using positive reinforcement measures is always helpful. 
If you choose to use incentives such as sticker chart to reward them for appropriate modifications, this may be helpful to encourage nocturnal dryness if done appropriately. What kind of behavioral modifications should we be trying to reinforce? Well, you can't just tell a child they will get a treat if they don't wet the bed without actually intervening to help decrease or prevent the nocturnal enuresis. For example, it's important that parents encourage voiding just before bed and eliminate beverages that are caffeinated and or high in sugar, particularly in the hours leading up to bedtime. Caffeinated and sugary beverages promote diuresis and aren't great for kids to be consuming anyway. All fluids, including water, should be restricted for the two hours before bedtime. However, it's important that kids continue to drink enough water throughout the daytime. It is also important to note that nocturnal aneurysis resolves spontaneously over time in most cases, so conservative measures are the appropriate first step. However, the longer the aneurysis persists, the lower the probability that it will spontaneously resolve. What do you think about Bobby continuing to wear pull-ups at night? Good question. Continuing to use pull-ups in children with nocturnal enuresis can actually discourage the children from getting up at night to void. So depending on the patient's age, pull-ups are generally not recommended, but that's a case-by-case situation. These are great tips. So what if you send Bobby and his mother home with instructions not to punish bedwetting, to discontinue nighttime pull-ups, to restrict fluids two hours before bed, and to record voids with a void diary? but he returns to the clinic six months later and they report no improvement. Bobby has continued to remain incontinent at night most nights of the week. What else can we do for him? So at this point, we probably should consider initiating active therapy. There are two options, enuresis alarms and desmopressin. Enuresis alarms have sensors which trigger an alarm to awaken the patient when they become wet. Desmopressin is a synthetic vasopressin analog that decreases urinary output by increasing water reabsorption. Those both sound like really great options, but they are so different. How do you choose between the two? Enuresis alarms have a lower relapse rate, but require dedication and commitment from both the patient and their family members. Desmopressin is more useful for short-time relief, such as in the case of a child going to overnight camp, but will not actually physically change their situation. Dr. Morgan Stern, earlier you mentioned that you run a voiding clinic for children with enuresis. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So in that clinic, we're able to get a little bit more granular and make sure that we're ruling out those anatomical reasons why they might not be able to control their urine, such as things like a uroflow with EMG, where we can see how well their sphincter is relaxing, how well they're able to get their urine out, and get a little more granular with their voiding diary if it's there. We can initiate therapies as well as to check for things like constipation if it's a continual issue. It's just another layer to help have them have support because as we said before, a lot of this is supportive behavioral measures that will help with time and ensuring that they are really adherent to our regimens that we have prescribed for them. That is so interesting. All right, so just to summarize our treatment options, after conservative therapy with evening fluid restriction and motivational behavioral interventions, There are two primary options for active therapy, enuresis alarms that help wake the patient up when they are wet, and desmopressin, which helps to decrease urinary output, but is best used in short bursts, such as for sleepovers or sleepaway camps. Great job, Maddie. Now back to the case. Bobby and his mother come back to the clinic in a year for a checkup. 
Bobby's mom reports that after a few months of using the enuresis alarm and providing positive reinforcement, Bobby achieved nighttime dryness. Yay! Out of curiosity, what may have happened to Bobby if we had not identified and appropriately treated his nocturnal enuresis? Unfortunately, as we stated earlier, children who are incontinent nightly and those who do not receive treatment will have a higher likelihood of remaining incontinent at night into adulthood. For older children, bedwetting could become a humiliating experience associated with feelings of guilt and shame, avoidance of social activities, and a sense of difference from others, victimization, or loss of self-esteem. It is important that we intervene early to reduce these risks. However, it is important to understand that it is pretty normal for kids to have enuresis up to about the age of seven. This has been such an informative episode, and I hope our listeners have learned as much as I did. Let's briefly review what we talked about today. Sure, I'll get us started. Primary nocturnal enuresis is diagnosed in children age five and older with persistent bedwetting at night. After identifying nocturnal enuresis, usually in a five-year-old, I would recommend some behavioral interventions and monitor for several years for hopeful resolution. When a child first presents with nocturnal enuresis, a thorough history and physical exam must be concluded to rule out any potential secondary causes of enuresis, such as a urinary tract infection, diabetes, constipation, obstructive sleep apnea, and bladder dysfunction, to name a few. After gathering a complete history and conducting a thorough physical exam, obtain a urinalysis, which will allow you to rule out many of the previously mentioned secondary causes of enuresis. Avoiding diarrhea should be initiated to gather more information. Initial management involves counseling parents to monitor fluid consumption before bed and completely cut out caffeinated and sugary beverages from the diet. Encourage parents to incentivize and reward rather than punish. Also, it is the utmost importance that we remind patients that this is not their fault. If these conservative measures are ineffective, we may consider using an enuresis alarm or desmopressin. Referral to a pediatric urologist is indicated if nocturnal enuresis persists beyond these regimens, and if there are any signs of underlying urologic disease or abnormality. A pediatric urologist can perform other diagnostic tests and imaging, as well as initiate novel treatments such as bladder training with videotherapy. It is also important to note that if there is a renal cause for this, nephrology might need to be roped in. Thank you so much, Dr. Goldberg and Dr. Morgenstern, for joining our discussion today. Thank you so much for having me. This is great fun. Also, a special thanks to MCG pediatric resident, Dr. Daniel Allen, for review and editing of the content, and to Dr. Shriti Kapoor, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Georgia, and Dr. Jordan Gitlin, Chief of Pediatric Urology at NYU Winthrop Hospital, for peer reviewing this podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. Brought to you from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember, all content provided during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. Mm -hmm.